If Aaron McGuinn should... was the national tiddlywinks champion, we'd post him playing tiddlywinks. I cool don't know what he... a tiddlywink is. What kind of car is that? <laughs> What's a tiddlywink? It sounds neat. <laughs> Hey everybody, and welcome back to another Pink Bike Podcast. Today, we're going to talk tech and about a topic that's near and dear to my dorky little heart, bike weight. How much should a trail bike weigh? How heavy is too heavy for an enduro bike or a downhill bike? And can they be too light? Where does weight matter most and least on your bike? And also, have we all been a little too concerned about how much our bikes weigh? Now, I'm going to argue hell no on that last one, but I have someone here who's a hell of a lot smarter than me. He's probably going to try to convince me otherwise. His name is Seb Stott. Hey, Seb, how much does your current enduro bike weigh? Uh, Well, I I don't currently own a bike, but I've been riding that uh, Privateer 161 a lot this year, which kind of tells you everything you need to know about my attitude to weight. I think it's somewhere in the 16s of kilograms. So I don't know what that is in pounds. Quite a lot. We'll get the Googles going. More than 30 pounds. For sure. And less than 50. It's 35 pounds. 35 pounds, Seb. You're okay with that? Yeah, oh yeah. I think that's the minimum as well. Like it depends on like I've changed parts and not all the time, but yeah, it's it's 16, maybe closer to 17. Would you like it to be lighter or do you care? No, like if I could wave a magic wand and make it a few kilograms lighter, then yeah, I would do that. It's just that I'm not willing to pay thousands of currencies for for, for that and to sacrifice braking power, suspension performance. Easy Uh, now, easy. We're going to get into all that (laughs) stuff, Seb. I'm not saying that heavier is better. I'm just saying that lighter is is actually not that much better. Mm, But it is a little better. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. (laughs) So a few weeks ago, Seb wrote a great article titled, Why You Shouldn't Worry About Weight. They got something like 420 comments. So today, we're going to nerd out on that later in the podcast. But first, Kazmir, what is the heaviest bike you've ever owned? Oh, uh... Probably Transition Grand Mall. Oh, classic. like that. Yeah, I think the front... Yeah, that was a heavy bike. It was always in the 40s. Like... I think I got to like low 40s. And that was my pedal bike. Like that's what I pedal yeah. around everywhere. It was my cross-country bike. Full-length seat tube, eh? Yeah, full-length seat tube. So I could just have that thing. I had a single crown fork on it. That's probably the heaviest bike. Front Yeah, dual, dual chain ring up front with a bash guard. Yeah, so yeah, around, the, around 40 pounds. I've also like used downhill bikes to pedal around. So I've, made, I've had downhill bikes heavier. But for, as far as a bike that I regularly pedaled on long rides, I think the Grand Mall takes the win. So 40-something pounds. Yeah. Okay. So how much does your, your current bike weigh? Whatever you're, whatever you're riding right now, your current bike? Probably like the low 30s. Well, I've been riding that, an aluminum Stumpy Evo lately, and that's like 34 pounds. Yeah, I think I'm kind of in the same camp as Seb. Like, it seems like they end up being in that, like, like 30 to 35 pounds is where most bikes seem like they settle into, to, no matter what. Like, unless they're like a down country or an XC bike. I think my heaviest was a, a 43-pound hardtail, Kaz. That's it was one of those of steel... Yeah, it was a lot of weight. It was one of those steel .243 hardtails with dual Atom Lab rims, stout downhill tires. It had two DH tubes in the back. I'd wrapped a downhill tube around a downhill tube, profile cranks, and a bunch of BMX parts. So yeah, that that added up to a whole ton of weight. Did you have a dual crown fork on it? No, I had a, a like a five-inch travel Manitou Sherman or something, but I think I had steel handlebars even. James, it's probably fair to say that Seb, Kazer, and myself... Our job as tech editors means that we think about this weight thing too much, maybe, maybe not. But from your perspective, as someone who's not a tech editor and maybe a little less geared towards that kind of stuff, how much is bike weight something that you care about? When's the last time you even weighed a bike? Yeah, not super something I really think about. I weighed, When I worked for MBR, I had like long-term test bike sort of things and I weighed because I had to like for the mag. Other than that, I think I only weigh bikes when I come to sell them because it's something other people want to know that I've never thought to know. I'm a bit of a bigger guy. If weight was an issue, I'd probably start with me than the bike, to be honest. So that's where I'm at with it. Well, you know what definitely isn't light, James? That Trinity downhill bike that has a that has an axis derailleur in the middle of the frame. Can you tell us about that thing? <laughs> Fantastic link. Um, yeah, you like that, eh? They're out of Australia, uh, and they've taken inspiration from Honda. You and Greg talked about that bike a little bit um, the other week. So, in layman's terms, what that means they've done is they've taken the derailleur and the cassette 
off the rear wheel and put it inside the frame just above the bottom bracket, which is, I think, pretty widely known to be what was in that box on the Honda. Trinity is saying that this kind of provides all the weight distribution benefits of a gearbox, kind of less um, rotational weight and things like that, but without the drag that we so often associate with a gearbox. Because you wrote it, Seb, how did you come across this one and um, what do you think of it? Uh, I think Casimir sent me a link on Instagram. We wrote an article about the company before, so we, they were kind of on our radar. But yeah, I think it's a it's a cool idea. It's a really interesting concept. Like certainly for downhill, I don't think you'd want to pedal that bike very much. They kind of said in passing in, in the interview that the efficiency was pretty much as good as a regular drivetrain, which which I think is a bit of a stretch. Yeah, you, you've, you've got, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, like you've got two chains, uh, one of which has an idler on it, and the the chain with the cassette and the derailleur, which is on the left-hand side of the bike, the cassette doesn't move laterally as the as you change through the gears, which means the chain line will bend quite a lot laterally to get to the extremes of the cassette. I think Honda had some sort of mechanism where they, I think the chain ring uh, would slide uh, with the gear on the cassette, so the chain line would always be straight. Whereas with this, the chain line just bends and, be, and because the cassette is so close to the crank, I think that's probably gonna cause quite a lot of extra drag when you're at the extremes of the cassette. So yeah, but for downhill, I think yeah, it could be a big advantage just not having your derailleur exposed and having the weight on the frame, not on the rear hub. Is everything rotating in there with the drivetrain while you're coasting like it was on that Honda or does it freewheel? Yeah, they've got a coaster crank on it in the in some of the videos, but they also showed it working with a regular free hub on the rear wheel and a regular crank. So you can you can run it anyway. The I think the big advantage for downhill is that with the coaster crank is that you can shift without pedaling. So if you're in a rock garden, you realize you're in the wrong gear, knock it down a couple of gears, and then when you start pedaling again, you're in the right gear. Are we all in agreement that this makes way more sense than a gearbox? I think the main advantage of this over a gearbox is that you can shift gear while you're sprinting. So with, with a gearbox, you have to like kind of ease off the power almost completely, change gear and then start pedaling again, which, you know, could be a problem in a downhill race. Um, yeah. So yeah, this has that advantage. They say it's more efficient than a gearbox, although how much more efficient, uh, I'm quite skeptical about. Yeah, I think people were put off by how complicated it looks, but to be fair, it's far less complicated than a gearbox internally. And I think once those people put some sort of fancy cover carbon cover over all that stuff i think people will will like it a lot more so it's probably not something that's going to see huge production numbers but it certainly is neat it's cool to see yeah we also had a new giant anthem released this week the big news of that one is jettisoned the maestro system and it now runs a single pivot with flex days we've seen similar move from the likes of santa cruz and specialized this year looks like this flex day design is like the high pivot and idler of the xc world in 2022 other changes include a stiffer front triangle slacker geometry bringing it up to date with those kind of um, a bit more i guess aggressive um xc bikes we're seeing recently kaz what did you think of this one yeah i mean it kind of makes sense like it, it looks nice and clean definitely it's a xc bike it's not a, a down country bike we need to split the terms you know still but it is slacker than anything we've seen in this from them in this realm it's like a 67.5 degree head tube angle which you know enduro people might be like oh that's too steep but that's actually pretty slack for a full-on cross-country bike yeah i think it seems cool it's gonna be lighter obviously by getting rid of that one link so it's gonna help them stay competitive none of us have ridden it yet but maybe eventually if we get our for a cross-country field test or something get one in next up seb's review of the bright racing shocks f929 this is an inverted enduro fork that does things a little bit differently seb can you tell us what makes this different from another inverted fork like uh one from intent for example well the main thing about this fork is that they pretty much don't bother with a negative spring so the negative spring kind of pulls you down into the travel for the first few mil and makes that first few centimeters of travel much softer so that you get some sag. The fork sits into its travel more easily. And forks have gone further in that direction with, with larger negative springs. So they have uh, more sag and a softer beginning stroke. Uh, Bright go completely the opposite direction and say, no, you don't want much of a negative spring at all. You want to have very little sag. And so the fork sits higher in its travel and you have more kind of positive travel available to absorb bumps. So as a result of that, the fork has a 150 mil, well, the fork I tested was 150 mil of travel, but they designed it to compete against 170 mil forks. So you maybe would have typically 20 mil less sag than a, a regular fork, so that you have the same sort of ride height, the same geometry as you would with a conventional 170 mil fork. That's the, that's the theory. How does that play out on the, on the trail, Seb? I, I think it's a non-starter, to be honest. Like, there's a reason why forks have 
SAG. There's a reason why we have SAG. It, it, it allows you to, it allows the fork to extend into the ground as well as absorb bumps. You, you have that travel in both directions. So that allows it to keep the wheel in contact with the ground much better. And mountain bike suspension, unlike most vehicles, so unlike motorcycles and cars, the bike spends a lot of time in the very first part of its travel, the first 10%, say. I actually measured it once, I think. On one track, I spent 14% of my time in the first 10% of the travel. How did uh, you measure I, that? Uh, with the motion instruments telemetry. So it gives you a histogram of where you are in the travel all the time. So you wouldn't get that with a car. Like you almost never get into the first part of the travel in a car. So what that means is that the spring rate, the stiffness of the spring in the first part of the travel is really important. What you basically have with this fork is, it's a bit like if you've ever set up a fork where you take all the air out and then you inflate it for the first time and you inflate it to a really high pressure and then you push down on the handlebars to equalize the air springs. But you know, when you first push down on it and it feels really stiff, it feels kind of like it's locked out mm -hmm. until you get to the transfer port and it does that little, that little hiss and then it feels good again and it feels like supple at the start. This fork kind of feels like that all the time. So you have a very stiff beginning stroke. It almost like it really doesn't want to start moving into its travel. But then once you get into its travel, it, it really starts moving kind of through that middle of the travel. It, it's, yeah, it's firm at the start, really kind of soft in the middle, and then it's really progressive towards the ends. So you're kind of using that middle third of the travel a lot. It, it's kind of very active through that middle of the travel. So before we get into why that might not be a good thing, are there any advantages to something like this? They, they say that it, obviously helps preserve geometry, axle crown height, that kind of thing. But on the trail, is that an advantage? I guess that's my question. I think if you were to compare it to a conventional 150 mil fork, then I suppose you have, you have more positive travel available to absorb bumps. And if you're just absorbing like square edged bumps as opposed to like holes and undulations, then yeah, that'd be great. And, and yeah, like with the suspension, everything has pros and cons. So if you're just kind of hanging onto the bike on a very kind of uncomplicated trail. Like if you just ride into a curb, the fork feels brilliant because the spring rate in that part of the travel just after sag is really soft. So you kind of sat really high in the travel, but then when you hit something, it just moves so readily through the, through the middle of the travel. And there are situations where that feels great, but there are also situations where it just, it just kind of dives, it kind of collapses through the middle of the travel. You also don't have that, that sag and that negative travel, so it doesn't really stay in contact with the ground. And the whole setup thing was basically trying to find the least bad situation between those two, those, those two um, opposing uh, requirements. There is no happy medium. It's like you have, to, you have to put up with not enough sag and, and too firm at the start of the travel. And it kind of tops out as well because you have so much spring force near the very start of the travel, just as your fork would before it equalizes. But you also have this really soft middle of the travel, so it's kind of blowing through its travel when you get on the brakes and things. Are you able to speak about the damper at all? Like, could you separate the airspring from the damper? Like, if this fork had a better airspring, maybe a more traditional airspring, would there be some, some more promise there, maybe? I think it's, it's really hard to say because the, the, the airspring is so different to anything else that that really dominates how it feels. I do, I do think the damper felt, you know, from, from what I can tell, it's quite impressive. It has a really wide range of adjustment. A lot of forks, like you run them fully open and it's not that fast, or you run it fully closed and it's not that firm. I think that I think that's a criticism I would make of the grip too. I think fully open is like it's all right for me, but it, for lighter riders, I don't think it's it's uh, fast enough. Yeah, wide range of adjustment. Uh, lockout is good. You know, you might as well have that, in my opinion. I, I can't say much about it, but I, I had no real complaints with the damper. It wasn't like spiking or anything, and I actually tested three different dampers and. The third one, actually, you got a lot of support from the, from the damper, which is what you absolutely need with that, with that design. But then, of course, that takes away from that comfort that I mentioned because of the soft uh, middle third of the travel. So, yeah, it's, you're kind of chasing your tail to try and use the setup to sort of make the best of it. But in my opinion, that, that air spring is, is just a non-starter. Should we, should we talk about those comments in there, too? You made some people angry about that. Critical review, Seb. Mostly Italians, to be honest. <laughs> Maybe like three Italians are mad. <laughs> Seb, so let's let's just break this down. You had this fork for a while. You tried mm. it with three different dampers from Bright. Like you gave this thing a fair shake, but it seems like there are some people pretty upset in there that 
you didn't like this thing. Could you speak to that at all? So one thing I said in the article that if you have this fork, you might have maybe 20 mil sag. And then with a conventional fork, you might have maybe 40 millimeters of sag. So that you've got a 20 millimeter difference in sag, which accounts for that difference in axle to crown length. And so I kind of said that just to illustrate that point about the concept. But a lot of people kind of jumped on that and were like, oh, he's just measuring the sag and he wants to have a certain amount of sag. And so, you know, his setup is obviously wrong because he's obsessed with sag. And really, I didn't actually measure SAG until it came to write up the review, and I kind of wanted to see where I was at in terms of in terms of axle to crown length at SAG. I haven't actually measured uh, SAG with with a fork for years. Like I think it's a really stupid thing to do because the the friction means that the measurement is doesn't really mean anything. It's really hard to get a consistent measurement of SAG on a fork. Yeah. So yeah, maybe I didn't communicate that very well. Like. I wasn't like obsessed with a certain amount of sag and then sort of compromised the fork to get that amount of sag. Um, I tested like pressures from like the high 40s to like the 60s PSI. That, that sounds really low, Seb, but that's because of the size of the air chamber, of course. Yeah. And if you have a, the bigger the negative chamber you have, uh, the more pressure you need. So this is the opposite of that. It's like there's basically no negative springs. So, mm -hmm. so you need less pressure in the positive spring to hold you up, basically. You're never going to make everyone happy. And I fully expect to wake up with a horse's head in my bed tomorrow. So, Oh, I hope so. I um, hope so. <laughs> we'll see how that goes. Seb, another article of yours this week took a deep dive into crank length. You kind of came away with the conclusion that shorter cranks could be better and that's even supported by some science. Um, what's the theory there? Well, the, the theory is that, well, a lot of people say, well, if you have a longer crank, you get more leverage and, and you know, that's got to be good, right? But the thing is that a lot of tests have shown that as your crank length gets shorter, you spin at a higher cadence. And so you basically just get the leverage by using a lower gear. So you have, you, you spin faster, and, and that gives you the same sort of power. And there've been, um, I think I found seven experiments into this, uh, just using Google Scholar, searching for crank length. They pretty much all found the same thing, which is that within normal limits, it doesn't matter in terms of your, your power on a static bike. So they basically got lots of, um, of, of people to do lots of different tests on static bikes with different crank lengths. Uh, all, the, all seven tests were done in a slightly different way. But basically the main takeaway was that not even with normal limits, like, so one, one study went to 120 millimeter cranks and 220 millimeter cranks. And at those extremes, yeah, they found a small, small decrease in sprint power, but with anything kind of vaguely normal, like 140 to almost 200 mil, there was no real difference in, in either sprint power or kind of aerobic efficiency pedaling at the same power with different crank lengths. So I think we're going to do an entire podcast about this in the near future, but I do have one question for you. I'm going to skip that one. Does that, that mean? Boring. <laughs> You're not interested? Some, no. Some people are interested in this. That article got a ton of interaction and shares and comments. And It's because people want to be right. Oh, you want to say Tess? No, because just pick, I mean, it comes down to, I think the, the good takeaway that I got was just pick the one that feels best to you and you're going to be fine. Like that's the, that's the well, answer, like, which is sweet. It's good. Cause then you don't have to be like, oh, these short cranks aren't right. Or these long cranks aren't right. It's like, just pick what you prefer. Like for me, I like one seventies. I've ridden bikes, one sixty fives. Like they're great on downhill bikes, but on like enduro bikes, sometimes I feel like they do make me spin a little too fast. Like I just don't like the feel as much, but you can just switch. That's why they make different sizes. So I like, I like seeing all the science and like all of that, but I just don't know about talking about it for an hour, but you can, you can do it. You can, we could podcast about anything for an hour. Well, Maybe it'll just be me and Seb then, Kaz. You're not invited. <laughs> so there. My question, Seb, was going to be, does that mean that for all these years that we've been arguing about whether we should be running 170s or 172.5s or 165s or even 175s, have we been wasting our time? I think so, yeah. I mean, you could go, you have to go to way bigger extremes to know, to get a measurable difference, I think. It's, it's the classic bike industry thing of like fine-tuning before you're in the right ballpark. Like 170 is totally arbitrary. So 172.5 cranks just shouldn't exist. That's just uh, totally silly. But the, the takeaway for me is it doesn't matter. So you might as well have the shortest cranks you can because then you have more ground clearance. That's all. That's, that's pretty much all the article needs to say, in my opinion. It's going to be a short podcast then. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Seb, when I rode the donut for the efficiency test, it has 150 mil cranks on it, I think. And it felt like 
total shit. And the bike was a minute behind. And I, obviously there's other things going on, but just between the seat angle and the super short cranks, it just, it felt like super unnatural and, and terrible. But I mean, there could be multiple things going on there, but like, <laughs> there could it, be. It, <laughs> if you're measuring your power, you're measuring like 300 watts, right? Yeah. Well, if you're doing yeah. 300 watts, you're doing 300 watts. And if the bike is slower, that must be because of like the, the drag and things. That's not because of the cranks being smaller. Don't say anything bad about the donut. Otherwise, you're <laughs> never coming back on this freaking podcast again, okay? You just need to pedal harder. Lastly, Mike, I'm sure you've been dying to talk about this one. Um, <clears throat> that is Brandon Semenuk's Rally World 100. So not only has Brandon Semenuk won Rampage this year, he also won the Cooper Tire Oregon Trail Rally, secured third in the uh, American National Drivers' Championship, and now he's released a new Raw 100, but this time it's on four wheels instead of two. For those people that say we shouldn't be posting car videos, I'm specifically posting more car videos because of that. <laughs> if Aaron Gwynn should... was the National Tiddlywinks champion, we'd post him playing Tiddlywinks, like... Is this I cool don't know what eat? a tiddlywink is. What kind of car is that? <laughs> <laughs> What's a tiddlywink? It sounds neat. <laughs> could be a new sport, How do you know maybe? he's not? Well, yeah, it could yeah. be. We should ask him. <laughs> Nico Vullio did some rally, didn't he? We could, he did. We could, we could organize a race between those two. Oh, Ooh, that'd God. be good. I would watch that. Could do a rally I... hill climb up the hill and then bikes back down. That would be pretty cool. Uh, that'd be pretty good. Yeah, pikes do you think Semenuk is faster descending than Nico right now? No way. No, I don't think so. I think it'd be good. I hear a bad word said about him. Yeah, I don't think so either. But this week's Pink Bike Podcast is presented by Michelin Tires. The French tire brand is proud of its 2021 EWS champions Melanie Poujan and Karima Moore and EWS winner Nic- Nicolas Vuillot. The new Michelin Wild Enduro and the Michelin DH were the tires of choice for the champions throughout the season. Follow Michelin Bicycles on Instagram. All right, and that brings us to our questions. And this first question, this was on Seb's article about that Trinity downhill bike with the derailleur and cassette mounted in the front triangle. Kind of like the one that Greg used to race, that Honda RN01. Ruben Sandwich says, the suspension was way ahead of its time, but the gearbox had a ton of drag. He says that he talked to Greg about it and Minar told him that it has so much drag. He still rates it as the coolest downhill bike ever, uh, but maybe it was the suspension and frame design and not so much the drivetrain that made it cool. So a few episodes ago, we had Greg Minar on and he talked about the RN01 in the podcast and he did say there was a ton of drag coming from it, but it let him shift while he was coasting or in the air. Honda tried super hard to lessen the drag in the system with fancy bearings and other tricks. Uh, but he did say that the suspension was unreal. So you can listen to that. It's podcast number 86 if you want to hear more. Hey, Seb, why don't why don't you think we've seen more of those derailleur in a can drivetrains? They seem to make the most sense, like less friction than a gearbox, some traditional components that already exist, just packaged differently. Why don't we see more of that? I really don't know, actually. It could be something to do with the the mechanism we mentioned earlier, which allows the the chainring to slide and follow the the cassette. I'm not sure if Honda had any like uh, intellectual property on that or if it's just hard to engineer, but I think that might be a kind of a, a hidden crux of the design. Mm-hmm. But the ba- basic answer is I don't know. It seems like a good idea to me. Well, same here. I don't know either. This next comment is on Matt Beer's first look of the new giant Anthem cross-country bike that ditches the Maestro suspension layout in favor of an all-new frame with a lighter weight flex pivot system. Ham and Cheese says, so does Giant make more money off manufacturing everyone else's bikes to the point where they don't want to push their own brand too hard? Kaz, do you think there's any truth to that? There's sort of some, some Samsung Apple parallels there too, isn't there? Yeah, I don't think that's really accurate, though. I mean, I don't think there's a person at Giant being like, I don't want to make this bike the best. I'm just going to design it this way. You know, that's not how it works. I would say that they do tend to be a little bit more like, you can call them like mass market kind of general. They kind of try to tick all the boxes without doing something kind of crazy and outlandish. But I think it's just different different methods of making your bike and deciding who you want the bike to be for. You know, there's some companies that want it to just be this super cutting edge. They're not afraid to push the boundaries. We're Giant does tend to be like they kind of stay in their lane a little bit more but they are the bikes that really tend to appeal and work for a lot of people so yeah i don't think they're consciously saying 
let's not try to make the best bike that we can. When you look at what they've done, I like they were one of the early ones to go with some longer reach numbers, like a little bit earlier than some other bigger companies. And they've done some things with head angles, but yeah, like, I, I mean, I agree. I'm not trying to say that they are at the absolute cutting edge currently, but, um, yeah, I just think that it's it, for them, it just seems to be more like a appeal to everybody rather than just a certain niche. Yeah, I think you you pretty much nailed it there. When Giant designs a bike and manufactures a bike, that bike, they want that bike to sell all over the world to just like mountain bikers, you know, in general, some some great mountain bikers and but maybe some mountain bikers that aren't so great and all sorts of different people everywhere. And it, it can't just be, like you said, the cutting edge thing at the at the front of the trends and all that. Yeah. And I, I mean, I guess what I'm confused with is what, what isn't cutting edge about some of the bikes they're coming out with. Like they're all kind of in the same realm, you know, like you look at the geometry numbers and stuff. There's not a thing that I'm like, oh, that must be a giant. It has this geometry feature. Like I can't think of one that's been like way off the mark, you know, anybody yeah, have? I would agree. Yeah, I just, I'm kind of like, these are all right in line with everything else. So I'm just a little bit confused of exactly what his point is, but yeah. I was just going to say, I, th I think um, pink bike audience is pretty uh, unusual. Like the generic mountain bikers are not the same as the people commenting on every article. And the people commenting on every article know what they want and they might want something quite quite niche and different, like I know a stump jumper Evo, but that's not what most people want you know, on a kind of bike shop floor. And so Giant, you know, they sell well because they, they kind of appeal to everyone. Yeah, I've, I've just been going through the, um, the pink bike um, community survey results yeah like santa cruz specialized you'd probably expect with pink bikers are right up at the top they're the top two brands but i think giant was in the top five so i mean they sell well even among the pink bike audience they're just like a massive brand they're in lots of shops yeah I, I don't think they're massively lagging behind or anything like that you know versus the band the brands they also manufacture yeah maybe they're putting more effort into appealing to their dealers as opposed to their um, end customers all right, let's get into nerding about bike weight and Seb trying to convince me that it doesn't matter as much as I think it does by using something called math and science, which kind of sounds made up to me. So Seb, I read your big article about bike weight not mattering, but then I get on my 25-pound trail bike, and you know what? It's way more fun to ride than my 30-pound trail bike. So why are you trying to tell me that weight doesn't matter? I'm not telling you it doesn't matter. I'm just telling you it doesn't matter as much as people think. Certainly in terms of like, you know, simple climbing speed, like how far, how long will it take me to get to the top of this logging road? And you probably think, oh, well, the weight of the bike, that really makes a big difference. Well, within like normal limits, like, you know, you can maybe save a kilogram from, from your bike by, you know, uh, spending a lot of money on it. And that's a lot of money, isn't it? That yeah, that's a hell of a lot of money. And it really doesn't make that much difference. In just in terms of like simple climbing speed, like uh, climbing up a simple climb. So Seb, in that article, you did a whole bunch of math and you kind of figured out exactly how much the weight matters. Tell me, can you tell me about that? Yeah. Okay. So um, to make the maths easier, I basically assumed that the system weight, which is the weight of the bike, the rider, and all the kit you've got to carry adds up to hundred kilograms, um, which I think is a, a fair enough approximation. So if you add a kilogram to that, which I, I would say is like the difference between a pretty heavy enduro bike and a pretty light enduro bike, that's 1% more mass, 1% uh, more weight that you've got to move up the hill. And that will take at most 1% longer to get to the top of a given climb. So, so not a huge amount. What about gradient? Is that like a fire road climb? What happens if I'm faced with like an hour of steep single track? As for gradient, like that's the worst case scenario. So on a very steep climb where pretty much all of your power is going into overcoming gravity, then 1% more system weight will mean it will take 1% longer. But on a flatter climb, like 1% or 2% gradient, then actually quite a lot of power is, is invested in overcoming air resistance. And that doesn't change when you add a kilogram to the bike. So the percentage difference there will be less than 1%. So it could be something like maybe half a percent on a less steep climb. So the 1% more time for a 1% increase in system weight is the worst case scenario. But as for like technical climbing, like that's a whole other question. And yeah, I don't have uh, any kind of answers on that. Yeah, I think you'd need to do some experiments. But in terms of like a simple climb, like a logging road or a tarmac climb, which is kind of probably what I spend most of my time doing when I'm climbing, then yeah, it's pretty simple, like that proportional relationship. Yeah, it'd be interesting. I wonder how much goes into like how the bike feels under you. Like science says that it's only 1%, but I wonder like, say you're doing some technical climb on a 36 pound bike, then you hop on a 26 pound bike mentally, how much more the, the feeling of that bike being lighter underfoot, if that makes you exert more effort 
You know, does that make sense? Like the, yeah, the difference totally. might not be as much, but because you're like, I'm on a light, fast bike, you just start going faster naturally. And then it kind of like skews the things a little bit yeah. more. I have way less motivation when I'm on a heavy bike with like big, fat, heavy, slow tires. But when I'm on a light bike, I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm supposed to be pedaling harder, you know, like I'm guilted into it. Yeah, I think I, I have the same thing. I, I used to do the same commute home from work like every, every night. And if I was on like a slow mountain bike, I would just sit and spin. Whereas if I was on like a road bike or a cross country bike, I would like get out of the saddle and really, really give it some. So I think there is something in that. I was also going to say that if your bike is lighter, then every time you put down a pedal stroke, the the kind of bike will like the, there's a bit of a disconnect between the mass of the bike and the mass of the rider. So the, there's a bit of a lag. So when you when you pedal when you do a pedal stroke, the bike will kind of start to accelerate and then your body will kind of kind of catch up with it, if that makes sense. So I think like the bike, that disconnect might feel stronger if the bike is much lighter, but that doesn't affect how long it will take to get to the top of a climb. It would just, the bike will kind of feel more uh, lively, I guess, if it's lighter because the inertia of the bike is less. So every time you pedal, the bike is kind of more eager to accelerate. Yeah. You brought up a good point there, Seb. One thing that I always see is, oh, it's way easier just to take a huge shit before I go for a ride or, you know, it's way easy. It's not way easier to lose weight, but you know, it's, it's way less expensive to lose a few pounds. And of course it is way less expensive to lose some weight off your body, but that's not really the same thing as a lighter bike on the trail. Is it Seb? I think that's a good question. I think, um, I think in terms of climbing, again, going back to like a simple climbing scenario, if you could lose a kilogram from yourself or a kilogram from your bike, you know, that's the same in terms of like climbing speed, but in terms of like descending, in terms of moving the bike around, like hopping the bike over obstacles, then yeah, there's a difference there. Like if you want to, if you want to bunny hop your bike over something, then yeah, a kilogram less on the bike, you know, might make a significant difference. Like if you've tried to, to, to bunny hop an e-bike, it's possible, but it's a lot harder. Whereas if you took that extra weight and put it in a rucksack, you know, or if that was on your body, it, it might not be as much harder to do the same bunny hop, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, when you're descending, maybe we'll come back to this in more detail later, but if the bike frame is heavier, that can give it some stability and, 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 and kind of force the suspension to work a bit better. Whereas if you have that weight on your body, then your limbs, your arms and legs have to hold up that weight as you're like going over all the bumps. And so your, your, your body has to work a bit harder. So I think for descending, it makes you, you might be better off with a one kilogram extra on the bike than one kilogram extra on the body. And um, like certainly if I'm, if I'm out riding and I have water in my backpack and I have water on the bike, I'll always drink the water in my backpack first because I think the, the water in my frame will give me give the bike a bit more stability and force the suspension to work a bit better. Whereas the water in my backpack is just, you know, making it harder work to to kind of hold on, on on long, rough descents. Do you guys remember that orange and the Nikolai, I think, I think it was an orange too, that had the lead weight strapped to it from a few years ago? Mm-hmm. Is that what they were doing with that, Seb? They were weighting the frame to make the suspension work better? How does that work? Yeah, there was a there was a Nikolai with um, when Chris Porter was supporting the the uh, the Nikolai team with Jack Redding, uh, so he raced it at Fort William at least for qualifying. I'm not sure if he used it for the race. Um, and then Orange brought out a bike, which I think was a bit of a kind of gimmick with with where you could slot lead weights into it. The idea is that with a heavier frame, the the frame has more more inertia, which means that when you hit a bump and the suspension compresses. It takes more uh, force to start accelerating that frame upwards into the rider. The weight of the frame you could call the the rigid sprung mass. So the sprung mass is everything that's held up by the suspension, which includes both the frame and the rider. But the, the rider is not rigidly connected to the frame. So when you hit a bump, the bike starts accelerating upwards. The bike actually moves quite a long way, and you can kind of see this in slow motion footage. The bike actually accelerates quite a long way upwards before the rider starts to sort of to come with it, if you like. So there's that disconnect between the the rigid part, the frame, and the 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 non-rigid rider. The rigid sprung mass, which is like the frame, the cranks, the handlebars, that that's maybe half the weight of the bike, so maybe maybe eight kilograms. Whereas the the rider, let's just say, weighs eighty kilograms, so ten times more. So when the bike hits a bump the springs have to be stiff enough to hold up the 
eight kilograms of sprung mass on the bike plus the 80 kilograms of the rider. So the springs have to be pretty stiff. But when, when the bike first starts accelerating upwards, the, the mass and the inertia of the rider doesn't really come into play because of that disconnect, because of the kind of the looseness of the, the hands and the feet and the, and the arms. So the bike just accelerates upwards with very little resistance. It only has that eight kilograms of inertia to stop it accelerating rapidly upwards. And so that's exactly what it does. It, has, it accelerates upwards until the rider sort of resists that motion. And the rider only starts resisting that motion when the bike is moving quite rapidly up towards him. And so that, that creates harshness. Basically, the bike kind of vibrates up and down over bumps and, and the rider isn't very good at kind of providing the inertia that's required to stabilize that mass and stop it moving up and down. So I did an experiment at my, my old employer uh, where we put three kilograms of lead on the frame. So to the total sprung mass of bike and rider, that's a pretty small percentage, like three or 4% difference. So it doesn't make much difference to like the sag, like you can't really measure much difference to the sag by adding three kilos, but it adds like, uh, uh, like a third, like more than a third to the rigid sprung mass of the frame. So that acceleration of the frame when you hit the, when you hit the bite, when you hit the bump and before the rider's inertia gets involved is reduced by like uh, a third or something. So it, so it's massively, it's it's noticeably less um, harsh. The bike feels way more kind of stable and and it's kind of moving around less. And and you can notice the same thing with an e-bike because an e-bike is like ten kilos heavier than a regular bike, and it just like irons out those bumps so much better. Are you telling me that I would be a better descender if I strapped? three or four or five kilograms of weight to the down tube of my too light down country bike no that wouldn't give you the um, skills leave it might make the bike feel better but you would still have the same skill level unfortunately okay 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 but would i would i feel like i'm in more control seb would i would the bike feel calmer i think yeah it would definitely feel calmer it would definitely feel smoother you could ride like kind of those trails with like high frequency really rough bumps like like braking bumps and stuff I think, yeah, and you can notice this with an e-bike, just just way smoother, like way less fatiguing in terms of like hand hand pain, vibration. But then, you know, there, there are downsides too. Like it's going to be way harder to bunny hop over obstacles, like manual over obstacles that like move the bike from side to side. There are trade-offs. And I think there's a reason why we haven't seen this like take off on the World Cup scene. Although, you know, maybe it will. I think, I think for a track like Mont Saint-Anne or Fort William, I think... You know, I th- I would say it's worth a try. Like there there are definite there are definite upsides uh, to doing so. I wonder if any of these teams are hiding weight on their bike where we can't see them. Like if they're putting they're putting some lead weights somewhere in the frame where we can't see, so that other competitors don't know that they're making their bikes heavier. It could be. I mean, I have heard you know there's been multiple races where they say that a bike can feel too light. You know, in the downhill world because. It's possible now you can make a 32 pound downhill bike that's totally capable of completing a world cup run without issues. But I do know those, you know, racers have said that when it gets too light, you get that, that feeling that Seb was talking about that kind of like wants to get pinged around. It just doesn't want to sit the way you want it to. So, um, yeah, I think weight's a pretty fascinating thing in the downhill world and really in all the aspects of, of mountain biking. Like what's the, what's the ideal weight is something that everyone's always trying to figure out. Yeah, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be surprised if some of them are. Uh, like the syndicate put out a video where they experimented with adding, they only added like five hundred grams of water with a with a water bottle. So I don't think that's really enough to make a a big difference. But yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if that test resulted in them sort of doing something more secretive. But uh, I don't know. It, I think like downhill races are famously traditionalist. Like they would have to have like really hard evidence for it being better. I wouldn't be too surprised if, if in the future it, people start experimenting with it more. Seb, I would love to see you redo that video, but instead of doing it on an enduro or a downhill bike, do it with a short travel bike. In my mind, those are the ones that are, I mean, they're the most skittery. They have the least amount of contact with the ground, mine anyway. Um, I feel like that would be where it would make the most sense. But on the other hand, you don't want your short travel bike just to weigh an extra five kilograms more just because... And then you're yeah. also going to run into tires too, like your tire issue, because tires are going to make a big thing with traction. Like you might have the frame feeling excellent, but then if you have no traction because you're running little tiny pinner tires, then your trade-offs might not be there. It's kind of nice to have all the other parts of the equation taken care of, I feel like. Yeah, it is a whole, it's about a complete package, isn't it? Yeah. 
I think only in downhill does it actually make any sense. Like, no, I'm not suggesting for a second that anyone puts lead on their their trail bike. But if you're if you're like uh, riding bike park, riding with an uplift, riding, um, you're getting sore hands all day. I think there's something in it. Seb, what is what is the ideal weight for a downhill bike? I'm sure you've done the calculations. You know it exactly. <laughs> um, more more research needed on that one, I think. All right, but it's it's the, yeah, it's the kind of classic thing of like bikes just weigh what they weigh, and no one's really looked into it very seriously. And of course, rotational weight is a pretty big factor in all of this, isn't it? That's the most important weight. Yeah. So when you're accelerating, when you're pedaling up to speed, uh, an extra an extra gram on on the tire or the rim, like the outside part of the wheel, has twice as much of an effect on how fast you will accelerate than the same amount of weight on the frame or the rider, you know, anything that's not accelerating. But even there, like the, the, the weight of the rider is just, just massively more than the weight of the wheels. So if you add, if you add maybe a kilogram to the, to the tires, which would be like going from cross country tires to like downhill tires, even then you, you're, you're adding a kilogram to, you're adding 1% to the total weight of the bike and rider, but because it, it's rotating, it, it basically counts double in terms of acceleration. So it's the equivalent of adding two kilograms to the frame or the rider. In other words, it, it, it reduces the acceleration by about 2%, which is not huge. Um, like this is not, you know, we're not talking big numbers because rims and tires are quite light compared to uh, the rider, basically. How does that affect unsprung weight though? This is much harder to put a number on. Like, um, again, like more research is needed, like, I don't know how to quantify uh, the effect of of adding a kilogram to your unsprung mass. So for anyone who doesn't know, the unsprung mass is basically everything that isn't held up by the suspension. So like the wheels, the tires, the cassette, these things that have to move up and down with uh, over a bump for the suspension to work. And yeah, you want that to be as light as possible because you want that that mass to be able to move up and down over the bump as quickly as possible. And especially down the other side of the bump, if 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 the wheel is really heavy, then you'll hit a bump the the wheel will get a lot of upward momentum and then it will just carry on moving upwards even after you've passed the bump and it will take ages for it to accelerate back down to the ground and so you won't get as good tra- as good traction as as good kind of ground holding so yeah making the wheels lighter definitely has a theoretical advantage in terms of suspension performance but like quantifying how much of a difference it makes to save what like 100 grams by buying more expensive rims is is pretty hard to to quantify. I would love to save 100 grams of rotational weight. That's super important. <laughs> hey, so whatever whatever makes you happy. Yeah. As someone as someone who has a, a PhD in mountain bikeology, would you say that rotational weight or unsprung weight has a bigger effect on a bike's performance? What's more important to you as someone who rides an enduro bike? I, I would say unsprung mass because wow. you you can. Um, because the the rotational inertia, you can quantify it and be like, yeah, this doesn't make that much difference. Uh, whereas with the unsprung mass, you know, it might make a more significant difference. It's just harder to measure, harder to quantify. So like to be on the safe side, I'd probably go with that. But but also Sad. like if it's rotational mass, it's unsprung as well. So I guess you get two for one there. That is true. Yeah. I was going to say like, I've I've taken off a set of 1700 gram wheels and put on a set of 1300 gram wheels and... I tell you, I sure feel like I could notice the difference in how the bike performs, especially like accelerating from low speeds. But the suspension feels just the same to me. But again, I'm, I don't think I'm in that mindset where I'm looking for improved suspension performance because my unsprung weight is lower. I, I don't think many people are. But it's interesting to hear you say that. Yeah, maybe if you bought the wheels for the suspension performance, then the, the placebo benefit would, uh, would go into that. Area. yeah exactly yeah it's just where wherever you want the placebo to be just think about yeah. that and that's, yeah. what, that's what you'll get <laughs> yeah so one thing that always comes up is the idea that weight doesn't matter which you know as you've you've sort of proven that it doesn't matter as much as you might think but i think it's the as much as you might think portion that's important not to lose sight of because you do have people just saying like it doesn't matter my bike's 50 pounds it's great but you know, having ridden, all of us have ridden tons of bikes. We do know that there are places where it makes sense to save some weight or might make some sense to, you know, go a little heavier for the benefit. Is there a certain place said that you say you think 
going as light as possible make sense? Like, is there a component where you're like, I want the lightest one, or does it not come into play? Well, like, as I said, like, if you can save weight without any compromises, then then brilliant. And um, I think I'm also, it's also worth saying that, you know, 1% faster uphill might be pretty much nothing to me, but for some people that's massive. Like if you're a, if you're a cross country racer or even an enduro racer, if you can go 1% faster uphill, then, then, you know, that's, that's a huge uh, win if you're at the sharp end of cross country racing. But the other, other thing I was going to say is, um, is actually about riding kit. Like I've noticed that, uh, some shoes will basically be the same and weigh like a f- 500 grams more than another pair of shoes. Like I, I quite like the the specialized the two FO clip light, and they're they're really light. They're they're like 500 grams lighter than the Shimano shoes I was running before. That's and rotational I, oh, weight, isn't it, Seb? Not really. I mean, I mean, oh, like, wait, what? It rotates. How is it not <laughs> rotational weight? It's like a revolution yeah, but, but because of the because of the gearing of the bike and like the radius of the cranks, like. It basically doesn't have much of an effect over and above just just the weight. You know what I mean? Like the fact that it's rotating doesn't really make much difference. Oh, well, that's disappointing but, for but all the, those people who like fancy carbon shoes that are super light. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, the point I was making is like you can have two shoes that cost about the same but have massively different weights. And the other thing I've noticed is that some shoes like absorb so much water if you ride through a puddle that they, they weigh like a kilogram more. And you're like, so... Maybe you should um, wear shoes that don't weigh too much when they're waterlogged. That's such good advice because people are spending Sometimes. like two grand. They're spending two grand to save that weight, but they could just spend a hundred dollars for different bike shoes, and it works even better. That might be the best advice we've given out on a podcast. Yeah, or or the same money. Like yeah, like some some riding shoes are really heavy, and you're uh-huh. like, how are these so heavy? One thing that also comes up that yeah, I can just kind of like address this is we see people say when they want to say weight doesn't matter. And then why do bike reviews always mention weight? You guys are obsessed with weight, but I think what it's such an easy metric. It, it's like a, a foolproof metric. Cause you can have two bikes. You can say this bike weighs more than this one. This bike weighs less than that one. So I think that's why it gets mentioned and it'll continue to be mentioned. And I think that I, I don't think anybody would disagree that if you had two bikes that that were somehow exactly the same, except for the weight, I think all of us would pick the lighter bike, right? Would any of you pick the heavier bike if everything was the same on it somehow magically? Seb, Seb's, Seb's going to pick the heavier bike. He's I'm watching him right now. He looks like this he is wants an enduro the heavy bike. bike. We're going enduro bike. It has the good tires. It's got the good suspension, and just somehow one is lighter than the other by a kilogram or two. Uh, I hate to kind of kill the sort of Fight Club esque nature of this podcast, but no, I would pick the lighter bike. Yeah. Of course. Okay. Good. Yeah. Good. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have to always fight. <laughs> no, we could agree. One other thing before we wrap this up, you wrote something real interesting about chain lube in that article, Seb. You said that chain lube can cost up to four watts at a 250 watt average or roughly 1.6%. So am I right in saying that the type of chain lube that you're using on your cross country bike matters more than if it weighs 22 pounds or 22 and a half pounds? Lube is more important than weight? Sounds crazy. It could be, yeah. I mean, I think there was a Cycling Tips article by, I think, Dave Rome. The article uh, compared lots of different chain lubes on on like a test jig and, and measured how much uh, frictional losses there were. And if you take like, not even the extremes, but like one of the worst and one of the best, uh, the difference in power output was like four watts. Like a 250 watt output power, that's like 1.6%. So 1.6% less power, making it to the rear wheel. So, you know, you're going to go 1.6% slower uphill. So that's kind of the equivalent to adding like 1.6% to the system weight of the bike plus rider. Wow. Uh, so like, yeah, about 1.6 kilograms or so. Similarly, like the efficiency I test I did with the, with the Forbidden Dreadnought, like to see how much difference an idler makes. That was just over 2%. So yeah, that's like adding two kilograms to your system weight, roughly in terms of climbing speed. So an idler costs the bike more than a bit of extra weight is what it sounds like you're saying. Yeah, I'd say so. Like a, a couple of kilograms. Yeah, it's probably, you'd probably be faster uphill with like a, a 16 kilogram bike uh, without an idler than a 14 kilogram bike with an idler. Kaz, how much did that Norco Shore weigh? You remember the, with the idler? Yeah, that was 36 pounds. So a lot of kilograms with an idler. It was actually so. 38 and a half once you factor the idler in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. That makes it feel even slower. <laughs> Before we move on to Comic Gold, I want to ask you, Seb, 
you know, we've all kind of agreed we would, we would pick the lighter bike if all things were equal, but where is there, what components do you not mind if they weigh a little more or where are you willing to give away some grams for the, the benefit or the uh, performance benefit of something being heavier? Uh, I would say definitely brakes. Like if my brakes work, if they're powerful, if they feel the same every time I pull the lever, I would, I'd be prepared to take any weight for that. So yeah, brakes. Yeah. What about you guys? Yeah, I think with brakes, I don't mind heavier tires, but I do wish I could get the benefits of like a downhill casing tire, but in a trail casing weight, would that be magic? But I don't mind running heavier tires to get the better, better grip. But, uh, but yeah, I think I'd be the same boat as you just brakes. I'll take any weight penalty just to have those work as good as possible. Just, you just reminded me of something which I saw come up in the comments on that article. Loads of times as people were saying, oh, I've swapped my, my bike from downhill tires to trail tires. And you know, they're, they're 500 grams lighter and it makes a massive difference. Like this, this article is clearly wrong. That was me. Yeah. uh, (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. Lots of other, unless you have lots of like, um, uh, fake accounts. I think there are other people as well. Yeah. Um, so I was going to say that, yeah, like the rolling resistance will vary a lot and rolling resistance, uh, it makes a huge difference to climbing speed, all of this stuff. So yeah, lighter tires are not just faster because they're lighter. They're, I would say mainly faster because they have lower rolling resistance. For me, I was always told about that, like triangle where it's like, um, weight, reliability, price, like pick two. And I would always go for like cheaper price, more reliability, less bothered about the weight. So Nowhere in particular, as long as it all works and it doesn't cost too much, I'm more than happy. <laughs> that sounds very reasonable, James. I'm going to be less than reasonable, though, because I do not want heavy-ass tires on my bike for more traction. I don't give a shit. Tires like that, when you put them on a bike, they just ch- they can change the character of the bike so much. And for the better in a lot of ways. But if you're someone who just isn't purely focused on the downs, like, I don't want to just spin up a fire road. I want to pedal hard and I don't want to feel like I have tractor tires on my bike. So for me, I'm not going to add heavier tires for more traction, especially on a downcountry bike. But I would take, God, it kills me to say this, Kaz, but I would take some four piston brakes. There you go. <laughs> yeah. But there's nothing wrong with sticking a little heavier tire on in the wintertime when it's nasty and sloppy. It's been raining like a foot every oh, day. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So like, you know, put that, put yeah. a meteor tire on the front of your downcountry bike, a little extra weight, but you're going to have more security. And less crashing. So I think tires are important. important. I agree 100%. Yeah. I think the other spot where we are all very happy to gain some weight, of course, is a dropper post, right? Yeah. But if it was lighter, I mean, if dropper post weighed three pounds, no, but if they weighed three pounds, I would keep a dropper post on my bike. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't want to go without. All right. Moving on to comment gold. We're going to go back to that Trinity downhill bike article from Seb Stott. Uh, this thing looks pretty crazy. It also looks like Salvador Dali designed the drivetrains. It's got chains on chains and idler pulleys and tensioners and a cassette where you wouldn't expect to see it. It also might work really well. I have no idea, but visually it looks kind of confusing. So Pink Bike member Nathaniel Merriweather said, damn, these mushrooms are kicking in on that article about the Trinity downhill bike by when looking at the drivetrain. So I'll include a link or some photos to that article so you guys can see what I'm talking about. I'll also include a link to Dave Rome's crazy article about chain lube. He went super crazy and it's super dorky and good to see. That is it for episode 92 and more than enough dorking out about bike weight. As always, let us know in the comments if that made any sense to you or if it sounds like we're talking out of our asses like usual. And if you have questions about these things, put them in there as well, and I'll make Seb answer them for you guys. Give us a good rating if you liked what you heard, share the episode on your social whatevers, and we'll see you next week. 